0: Welcome to Inside the Four Walls. Sports nutrition, active nutrition, and lifestyle nutrition is our world. It's changing, it's adapting, and it's evolving at a pace not many of us had anticipated. And we want to know more. I've learned over the years that some of the best insight is derived through conversation. And if you truly want to understand the dynamics of the market, you need to look beneath the surface. You need to ask those from within. So that's what we're doing. We talk to people from within the industry, those that have opinion, those that have been at the coalface, and those that have been there and done it. So buckle in and enjoy the ride. I'm Nick Morgan, and this is Inside the Four Walls. Welcome to episode 27 of Inside the Four Walls, and today we have Joe Wellstead of Motion Nutrition. Now, motion is all about the world of nootropics, which, as we know, is a hot topic and a high growth area. But there is, of course, a lot to unpick with regards to terminology and helping consumers understand the products and, of course, their benefits. Now, the beauty about Joe and one of the reasons I really wanted him on the podcast is he's not shy in telling you how it is. He's not shy in providing his opinion and he very much adheres to the principle of transparency and all that makes for a great podcast and therefore I'll hand you into the capable hands of Joe. Joe welcome to Inside the Four Walls. It's been a few weeks in organizing but uh, we've got there.
1: How are you? I'm doing great thanks and I'm I'm very happy that we got there. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah good and you're a podcast veteran now as well aren't you? Yourself doing your own and a few others. Um, It's just a new way of communicating isn't
1: it? Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy it. And um, recording my own, uh, which is called the Anti-Hustle Hustle Club podcast has been very fun, because it's, um, it's like, somebody described it, we had a guest last week, and, and he said, you know, side hustles are great, if you do it because you love it, and then you get into a flow state. Of you know, it's just like any kind of activity. You could be out surfing and you get into a flow state, or you get you do meditation, you get into a flow state. If you're podcasting and, and interviewing people who have like really different and interesting stories to tell, it's just really fun. Yeah, it is. It's also quite
0: cathartic, isn't
1: it, to be able to get off your chest a little bit. Do you find that? That's true. That is true. And I, I love the feeling of like after doing uh, a kind of intense podcast, you know, you have to you kind of have to go out for a walk or something. Like you're like, I'm like you know, I've, I've, I've just given it everything and I'm, I need to like chill for a bit. Yeah. So let's get started for everyone
0: listening. Um, th- they will be familiar, but it, it, if you were to describe Motion
1: to everybody in 60 seconds, how would you describe it? I would say at Motion, we're a health supplement company and we help you deal with stress, sleep and energy. And and where did that come from? Because well, let's start this again. How old is the company? Uh, we are five years old now. We launched uh, early 2016. And when we launched, we were uh, um, specifically an organic sports supplements brand. So our goal was to make sports supplements that would help with your performance, but also be genuinely healthy and, and genuinely good for you, as opposed to taking a supplement that you think, okay, this is going to help my performance, but it might not be so healthy, it might not be so good for me if I take it every day, I'll just take it every once in a while and I'll get away with it. Now, we wanted to create supplements that would help your performance and genuinely make you a healthier person if you took it every single day for the rest of your life. But it, so if you pivoted, because that doesn't sound quite the same as how you described it at the
0: beginning, how, yeah. how, what's, what's that pivot? What's that switch point? And how quick did that take?
1: So from the outside, it can definitely look like a pretty hard pivot, but um, actually... I see it differently. Um, Right from the offset, our goal was to help not performance athletes. Uh, Our goal was to provide supplements that would help you feel better physically and mentally and help you perform better, but actually also help your long-term health. Uh, And the only kind of shift has been that uh, we realized that for every person whether you are an athlete or a professional of any sort, you could be a creative, a musician, an entertainer, or you, you could work in finance. The biggest hurdle that you have is high stress. And that means probably poor sleep. And that means you could probably do with having better energy for the day. And so we've kind of gone, okay, what's the, what's the highest point in the pyramid that we could attack and, and that we could help people with that's going to have the biggest downstream benefits? And so, you know, over the past year, you've seen so many brands get into things like immunity, but actually, if you're sleeping well, and you're managing stress well, and you have high energy levels, your immunity is going to be strong as hell. Immunity is downstream from all of those things. So we just gone, okay, helping people with stress, sleep and energy is the, is, the, is the sort of first domino. That's the biggest thing we can help and the biggest thing we can do that's going to have the greatest downstream benefits.
0: It's really interesting. I think we talk about this a lot right now. I hate to use the word a bit fashionable um, in terms of because of the media spotlight on it, and particularly in the, the, the ream of stories come even post-Tokyo with athletes, et cetera, almost re- re-emphasizing the degree of stress that they're under um, and, and the, t- the realities that they need time away. But 2016, thinking about that group, and also the potential for the everyday athlete. That's so some while ago. How, what is there a personal story to you getting st- started? Because it kind of feels like that was ahead of the curve or ahead of the way that the industry has been talking about it. How do you look back? Is that is that fair? Uh,
1: I I take it as a compliment. So thank it you. It is Nick. a compliment. I, I, it I, is. I think I think we've um, really created a category, uh, at least in the UK, and and there are a lot of people playing catch up and a lot of people just painfully copying not just our our products but actually our style our colorway our our visuals our wording and it's kind of like I mean I find it a bit sad because I I wouldn't want to run a business like that I'd want to create something truly that was my own Um, but anyway that's a side note Um, the personal story is that I was a professional swimmer I, I competed in the 2014 Commonwealth Games for Scotland and I was always into eating really healthy, I I've, I grew up in France, so I, I, that means that I grew up, you know, going to the markets on Saturday mornings, and, and cooking fresh healthy food, so I was always able to do that, but when it came to supplements, at least up until 2014, it was just very disappointing, not not very good quality of products, and the only purpose that was sold in the supplements world was to help with performance, or aesthetics, uh, but, but that was it, and so if it was going to make you know be perhaps less healthy or perhaps uh, trigger pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes when you retired from sports which is a huge problem for a lot of people who were you know high level in that era Um, well nobody cares because it's going to help with your performance today and and that was a, a big kind of mental issue that i had with supplements at that point so i spent a lot of time researching and digging into the different kinds of products and just always left kind of disappointed um the only the only kind of healthier options were all plant-based they were all just the early kind of vegan brands like sun warrior that i I was importing from the us before they even they were even sold in the uk but that didn't really make sense because i wasn't vegan uh, you know and i love whey protein um so that, that just didn't make sense. And also the products I didn't think were very good. I, I, I didn't think they tasted very good and didn't think they did the job as well as, as others. Um, so just a big frustration on the product front. And then uh, after quitting swimming, my co-founder and I were discussing this and from the sort of more macro perspective, it was clear that the audience was building for supplements, uh, sports supplements, but also perhaps other things too. and. The only shift on the product front was, at best, a change in packaging, at best, a change in wording, probably a change in colors, maybe making things uh, pink instead of black uh, to sell to more women. And it was just kind of, I think, a little bit sad to see that there was such a bigger appetite and not much innovation at that point, product-wise. It was all very superficial innovation, I, I, I thought anyway. And so that was kind of where... Uh, the idea for Motion came in was to just create genuinely healthy products that would help people who are not looking for elite performance, although our products would help for that, but generally people who, you know, have busy lifestyles and want to feel healthy, want to wake up feeling fresh and want to be able to have that energy to go for a workout when they're done for the day. And, and then by the time they get home with their family, not be grumpy, but actually have the mental capacity to take on, you know, family life and playtime with the kids or, or whatever else it might be what were the first products you created uh we launched with a range of 12 products uh we we really wanted to not be a sort of standalone product brand when we launched um nowadays i'd probably look at things differently but back then uh the sort of uh strong d2c kind of start with one product and grow from there it wasn't so much of a thing. And, and we took the approach of, uh, you know, we want to we wanna be a brand that can cater for everything that you might look for in terms of sports supplements, but do it really, really well. And so we launched with uh, organic pre-workout, organic post-workout recovery shake. Um, we launched with uh, three three or four different organic whey proteins, and uh some supplements uh some of which we don't carry anymore but um i think were fantastic but quite uh perhaps a bit too niche so for example we had um a product called hit beta alanine uh which right now i think would do incredibly well if we still had it because um people high up in the crossfit world have been hailing the benefits of of beta alanine but uh I, I guess we didn't carry that one for long enough um but it, it, I think um, we had a really interesting mix, but we were actually too niche in the sense that we were we were selling to essentially me as a customer, as opposed to selling to um, the market. And, and that's kind of how we shifted over the years is actually go, well, there's only so many people like me. I've got quite a specific background and particular and unique experience of having been at at an elite level in sports but also be really interested in health there's not a lot of people like that so actually how can we really simplify things make it really accessible for as many people as possible and really easy to use and that's kind of now the backbone of everything we do it needs to be easy to understand and easy to use
0: and how much i mean for everyone listening put some context that from 2016 to 2021 how much has the product portfolio changed so from what you just described in terms of launching no small undertaking with 12 products Mm -hmm. at launch actually to what it is today is it would you describe it as quite different or not
1: uh it is it it, it is different uh certainly our our focus is different and, and our flagship products didn't exist back then um however uh There are a lot of customers that have been with us since 2016. Uh, And and I love that because it's it's a testament to the fact that we we offer really high value products and and people have learned to trust us. So somebody that started buying an organic whey protein from us, or perhaps an organic pre-workout, that there was nothing like this in 2016, we left a really good impression with them. And so when we launched Unplug, for example, our natural sleep supporter you know, the natural inclination would be for that person to try it and, and to trust what we were doing. And, and I, I absolutely love that. That's one of the you know most proud things uh, that that I have about Motion. Yeah, I guess my point was actually, um, maybe was slightly
0: leading, so I would have said, oh, actually looking at the product range today, it's quite different to what you described, actually. Um, but my point was almost like, I was going to ask the question about how difficult it is to create a category. Mm. But in a way, you're creating something which is so exciting, isn't it? but also the consumer doesn't really know what they want from that category yet either. So in some respects, it's just natural. It's going to change and evolve. And I guess it is a success that if consumers bought in 2016 and they still buy today, because effectively they've evolved with you, either they have changed what you offer them or you've changed what they want from, I don't know which is the chicken or the egg really, but I guess, um, is, is that a fair
1: reflection? I mean, did you even know what the category was back then? Uh, probably not. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of hindsight bias and, and I don't want to say things just out of survivorship bias and, you know, no. yeah, sure. We knew exactly what we we're doing. Probably not. But I think that as a brand, we need to be always just one or two steps ahead of the consumer. And certainly when we launched power up and unplug our flagship flagship products now, uh, nobody knew what kind of things these were, uh, the consumer didn't know, press didn't know, and retail didn't know. So those are three big elements that we had to work on. Um, you know, for context, Holman and Barrett created shelf space for nootropics after we launched Power Up and Unplug. It wasn't there before. So of course now there's a couple of other brands, but it did not exist. Um, Men's Health created Nootropics as their as part of their annual supplements award in 2019 exactly 12 months after I presented it to them, that didn't exist before. Uh, we won that award in 2019, 2020, uh, two years in a row. And these things did take time and did take a lot of work. But, but for us, it was working on press, working on retail, and then working on the consumer uh, in terms of education. And those three pieces eventually kind of come together and create a market appetite. And, and that's, that's where we are today.
0: I'm really glad you described that. That was perfect, actually, for everyone listening. Um, Just on that retail discussions, because it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Now, I can only imagine that you can have those conversations. Everyone's like, yes, it's a great idea. Then, you know, "This is I can share the vision. But it has to go so much further than that. I mean, how easy or frustrating were those conversations to get to the extent where you could get shelf space and maybe that they didn't just say they liked the idea, but they could get behind the idea. Like what was the next level detail you really needed to drive to, to unlock those conversations?
1: Well, you have to, um, okay. I need to add a, a kind of caveat to this. We didn't have much money to spend. Uh, if you have money, you can make things happen fast. That That's one thing for sure, but we didn't have that option. so when we started talking with hon Barrett, it was exactly as you described. There was a lot of excitement. People really understood it. But from that first conversation, it took actually precisely 15 months to the product being on shelf. Uh, and what happened over the course of those 15 months is uh, you know, we, we started with listings in plant Organic. We start we, we got listings in Whole Foods. Uh, we got listings in, in Revisal, whatever else came next. But really what happened is we got men's health coverage, we got Daily Mail coverage, uh, we started running some pretty successful Facebook ads. And, you know, buyers are not silly. They, they can see a fantastic product, but then they need to see either, okay, you're gonna commit, you know, 50,000 a year in, in, adver- in channel advertising, as in money in our pockets to justify your shelf space, or we, we're gonna see that there is a lot of above the line marketing activity where you know this product is in is in the minds and and uh, sort of uh, eyes of the consumer at scale which is going to mean that when people enter our shop they know the product and they recognize it and they're going to spend money on it
0: yeah
1: but the exciting product the exciting product alone is not going to do that yeah they wanted you to show your own confidence in your own product
0: the advertising and the investment i don't think it's
1: a question of confidence i think it's just a question of numbers you could have an incredible product, but if, if nobody knows it, and if, yeah. it, it, you know, as a founder, it's very easy to say, look, the product sells itself. You just have to look at it and, and you understand exactly what it's about. But that's not the case. People yeah. need to see it. They need to see it several times. They need to be familiar with it. They need to see friends and influencers and people they respect with the product in their hand. They need to see it in print. They need to see it on screens. And then eventually all that comes together and they're willing to part with 25 or 30 pounds to buy the product. And if you can't do that, then you better be ready to spend a lot of money quick to get that visibility very, very fast. Yeah. Good re-
0: reality hit for everyone listening. Uh, the next question I've got, is, it's actually another one, actually. I don't know why I'm going to spit uh, a bit of myth one. I don't know if it's a myth or not. You tell me. People discuss those that are category creators have a first to market advantage. I think by definition you do. You're first to market. You're sort of driving the awareness, you're front of mind, you've just invested daily mail, etc. cetera, mental health, so on and so forth. After 18, 18 months to get on shelf, now we're then two years down the line, then three years, now we're five. Does it make a difference anymore? I mean, how, do you still do you think there's a first-to-market advantage? What do you need to do to keep hold of it? What's your view on that as, a as, um, you know, a, about, uh, you know, taking and being on the front foot? Um,
1: yes, I think there is an advantage, but I think there's, for us, only an advantage because we're an omnichannel brand if you're a pure play d2c brand and you spend 100k a month for your first two years on facebook ads and you're creating a category for it but you're not getting a return fast enough because you don't have a big kind of flywheel of marketing you're only spending money on ads uh and you know you're getting sales sure you're getting high growth but you're not getting a quick enough return that you're getting money back in the bank fast enough to keep this going and if you're not getting continuous investment you're going to run out of money but you've still created a space. And so then it's a much more easy and much more um, efficient for, for the next brand to come along and say, well, we have some money to spend because we've just started, the category is there. So now when we spend 10 pounds on an ad, we're gonna get 20 or 30 pounds in return. Whereas when that first brand started, they can spend 10 pounds on an ad and only get 10 pounds in return. And so that's very difficult because you're creating the space. You need to work so much harder. You need to create so much more visibility and uh, perhaps get five, six, seven impressions with a consumer before they make a purchase. Whereas perhaps the next brand that comes along only needs to be seen a couple of times because the the consumer already has that, you know, has already seen it. They've already seen a very similar product and they sort of go, okay, yeah, I've seen that a couple of times now. This is a new brand. It looks even better than the first one I saw. I'll buy this. So that is a very dangerous first mover advantage. But with retail, you know, things that take time mean that you have a bit of time afterwards as a security. Things that go very fast mean that you can lose it very fast. So you can get Facebook sales very fast, but you can also lose that position very fast. Whereas to create a shelf space with a retailer like Home Barrett, they have to remove something else. There is a finite amount of shelf space. And they only do that once or twice a year, unless you're performing extremely poorly, in which case you're out fast. But um, that means that it's quite hard to replace. And if they're gonna replace a brand with something else, they need to have some kind of reassurance that it's gonna do well, which is why it took us 15 months to get there in the first place. They wanna make sure that whatever they are removing, well, we're gonna come in and do better. So that that gives you the first mover advantage as an omnichannel brand. Yeah, it, it almost feels people don't talk enough about omni-channel
0: and why that is or can be advantageous because we're all caught up in direct-to-consumer and in theory the efficiencies of that and the cost efficiencies of that. But I don't think Beneath the Surface is as straightforward as that. Why, why don't we talk enough? Why isn't enough people heroing the sexiness of omni? Or is it just not the same as being the direct-to-consumer?
1: What, what's your view on that? I think that as a startup, if your goal is to grow real fast and sell, then the sensible and logical path is to go direct to consumer because you can get speed. And the idea is that whoever buys you, you know, will then have the distribution. The sort of classic startup and then industry buyout is that, you know, for example, Kellogg's bought um, RX bars. They grew successfully D2C and then Kellogg's can go, okay, we have the distribution, we're going to put you in, Twenty thousand retail points across the country and and that's how we can scale it fast for example for example um but the flip side of that is that your d2c acquisitions are going to be expensive what's happened when with us when we launched in holland barrett is we suddenly became from being a london brand we became a nationwide brand and there's always you know a bit of um uh, to and fro with this we can't we, you can't pitch it like this to buyer but the reality is a lot of people discover your products in a store you know there's 70 million people in the country most of them have never heard of or seen motion nutrition so when they go into Holland Barrett store uh, the chances are they're going to see our products for the first time and that is going to help with your acquisition across the board whether or not they buy it in Holland Barrett they've seen it there so perhaps a couple of days later uh, if they see it on their Instagram feed or they see somebody they follow with the product in hand and then the following day they see an ad for it suddenly they've seen it a couple of times and they're feeling quite comfortable with it because while well, they know it's kind of legit like they've seen it you know, with the approval of Holland Barrett they've seen it with the approval of this person they respect on Instagram and now they're seeing an ad which looks really good and actually makes a lot of sense for them so suddenly instead of spending hundred, 120 pounds on acquiring a customer, which D2C brands are spending, you know, we're spending 15 pounds on acquiring a customer because it makes sense for them and they've already seen it a couple of times. That's the difference. Both are, you know, fine scenarios, but one of them burns a lot more cash than the other. And in terms, because
0: you've had investment and you'll raise again, I think, I believe um, in the future, what what how's it been does that mean you talk to only certain types of investors i mean what's people's types of conversations you've had on that because i'm sure people have asked you why aren't you entirely to see you down that route etc just give us an insight into what it's been like those conversations with investors in in terms of raising money and people getting under the bonnet a little bit of much mm. to try and discuss the channel and the decisions you've made
1: so uh, we've raised just under a million pounds to date. So not a huge, huge amounts. Um, and all of that has been through angels or one kind of micro fund. So we've not had any large institutions come on board, but I have spoken to a load of VCs. And um, to be perfectly honest, to my disappointment, conversations tend to be quite simple. And I think that maybe things are changing now. And and I have spoken to some VCs that have had incredibly smart questions and I can tell you what sort of question they've asked but um, in general it tends to be sort of tech led questions that the reason I find it disappointing is I don't think it really makes sense uh, for a, a consumable product for for a, a CPG product you know focusing purely on things like what are your what's your Cact LTV what's your customer acquisition cost to lifetime value that is a valid metric but um, a smart question that I've been asked is, are you selling your products? Are you getting orders from countries where you are not advertising? The reason that's an incredibly smart question is you're suddenly not looking at a metric that is purely numerical, but you're looking at uh, understanding the consumer mindset. So if you're getting sales from a country where you're not advertising, that means that you are getting word of mouth across border. And word of mouth is not a strategy, but word of mouth is a sign that your marketing is working and your products are successful when once they get into the hands of people. So if you buy our, our product and you tell your cousin in Australia about it because you, you love it, you you believe in the brand and, and the product has been successful for you, and then we get that's a very valid endorsement, and then we get a sale from Australia that's very, very telling of the potential and the success of the brand. Uh, and, and that means that if you scale that you're going to get that at scale uh, and you're going to repeat that more and more which is going to make everything way more efficient which means that as an as an investor the chances are you're going to get a really good return on your money
0: so h- how does that mean you're so in terms of potentially raising in the future I think you have visions for that h- how do you want to approach that then in terms of um, taking ownership of who you want to talk to and the types of questions or uh, and you know interrogation you want
1: to receive how are you going to approach it uh i will now very simply i mean i I want to work with people who understand exactly what i've just described and understand that uh consumers are not users you know if you come from a tech mindset um you see consumers as users so you know you see it all as metrics and that might make sense for an app or something that is very kind of you know gamified for instance but when you're talking about something that is uh deeply emotionally rooted in somebody's life you need to scratch that's beyond that surface of just a user and how long are they staying with you and what's the churn you need to understand what's going on how much are you ingraining yourself into the person's day-to-day life are you is it becoming like brushing your teeth in the morning and in the evening that's really valid and really valuable and so i want to work with people who understand that
0: yeah such great insight! I love it, Joe. It's brilliant. Um, I suppose that just to, to cover off this sort of section, um, a, a little bit about that and the retail channel. Can you give um everyone listening some some flavour of actually therefore you you know your split between the channels, just direct to consumer retail, um, and maybe how
1: much is in and out of the UK, just just for context. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're doing about forty percent of our revenue through our own website, uh, about twenty percent through Amazon. And another 40% through retail, uh, and and the biggest our biggest retail channel is Holland and Barrett, and and Hull, I think I think the reason we're in a bunch of stores with with Boots as well and and Superdrug, but Holland and Barrett are actually pretty good online as well as in store, whereas the others uh, are pretty lousy online.
0: Yeah, it's actually it's a really good you know it's a really good train of thought actually because you, you mentioned like. So a hot boots, super drug, You mentioned earlier about Planet Organic and um, Whole Foods, and you also said Revital, right? So there's there's a list. There's a list of top ten that everyone would go through, particularly in the UK, anyway. Um, but you, you find that you know that list is still relevant. One and number two, you know, Holland and is still the the mainstay of that sort of speciality type
1: channel. Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, the way that I describe it today is Holland Barrett is a specialist retailer, so. I don't have the number of SKUs that they have, but it's going to be a heck of a lot smaller than somebody like Boots. Boots is essentially a grocer. So, it, you know, it'll work great if you can spend a bunch of money and you, you need to be spending a lot on above the line advertising. And you probably need to be spending a lot in, in store marketing so that you get the end of aisle gondolas, you get whatever fancy placements, you get the, um, you know, the little cards that stick out and give you the special offers and all these things um that might work very well but if you can't afford to do all that you're going to be kind of on the bottom shelf and not really seen by anybody unless unless they're willing to go oh yeah like that product's on three for two and I know that it's in this store so I'm going to kind of go hunt for it like that's valid but it's not going to be a big 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 Mm sell-through um whereas Holland Barrett much smaller skew count I'm certain um much more visibility for all the products listed there and uh, a much clearer intent to buy when people go into yeah. Uh You know, boots, you might go into boots to buy a meal deal or you might go into boots to buy paracetamol or, or you know, plasters for your blisters. There's a million reasons why you can go in there. Yeah. Whereas it's, yeah. it's Hohenbarth, you're probably going in there to help with something along the lines of sleep and energy to be perfectly honest. So maybe that's why we work well there. Yeah, I mean to be fair,
0: n- not comparable channels in terms of pharmacy versus specialist per se, but just just interesting that that's where you continue to see success. How do you see channel evolving? Actually, Joe, like um, you know, because people have tried to move into the bigger supermarkets, grocers. Obviously, people have had a, some success, on some others not with Amazon, etc. But let's just talk about mainstream channels. How do you see that evolving? Either in general, question
1: number one, and then question number two for motion. So, in general, I think we've seen um, Sainsbury's try pretty hard, um, Tesco as well, but I think Sainsbury's probably tried harder lately. Um, and I'm not sure that it's been a success. And I think that um, from a supplement perspective, you know, in, in a sort of supplement format, I think the reason that it's very difficult is you're going in there, whether it's online or in store, and you're racking up. 100, 150 pound, 200 pound cart. And then you're saying, okay, I need to add like a 20 or 30 pound supplement on top of this. That's mentally very, very tough. You might buy it elsewhere regardless, but it's tough to add another 20 or 30 pounds on top of that when you're already spending so much and actually getting a lot for your money. I think that's probably why it's so difficult when you're buying groceries. If you're spending 150 pounds in Sainsbury's, you're getting a lot of stuff. Um, Whereas then you're looking at a supplement that's physically quite small. And the sort of basic brain reaction is to go, that's quite a lot of money for not a lot of kind of real estate. (laughs) I'm not getting a lot of stuff here. You know, when you compare it to your big bag of bagels for a pound 50, it's kind of in a very simplistic way, hard to justify. I think that that's quite a difficult mindset to go beyond. Uh, And, you know, of course, we've seen brands kind of take the approach of let's make this product into um, you know a food or, a food or, or a beverage, which is interesting, but I think it's if you're still going to try and play the supplement card I'm not sure it, the transition is so clear I, I'm, you know for me i i I kind of have thought about it quite hard would would a um you know beverage version of unplug for example, transition well to our supplement? product and i just can't really see it it's it's such a different type of thing i think there is definitely a space for acute kind of sos type products and that's that's interesting but i think that's probably more of a retail uh, sorry a travel retail placement rather than a grocery placement um so then you're you're looking at okay there's i guess category crossover into energy drinks but energy drinks is nothing new in grocery i think the I think, the
0: challenge, I think the answer for me is that you can see how the proposition could manifest itself in food, drinks, and snacks, for sure. They already exist. It's just to what degree can any one brand do all of it, or does it have to be specific brands with particular expertise or wider distribution networks, certain capabilities that do one and then the others do the other? Um, and maybe someone has a portfolio and they have different brands doing a little bit of both. So... Um, I think it's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, if you took where you are today, it's, you, you could potentially do it, but it's going to really stretch the yeah, exactly. to have the breadth of conversations and the investment, isn't it? I mean, it's not, it's no one's, it's not a small investment to do it.
1: No, it's a completely different ball game logistically. It's, I would not want to take it on just now, that's for sure. But
0: actually, just taking us back to what you mentioned about the online of your, of your third party retailers, it does mean that to do well in certain retailers, you also need them to ensure that all of the way that they're responding to the, the way that consumers are evolving and direct to consumer and online retailing within their main four walls as it were, well, like Holland and Barrett, has to be good, doesn't it? And you've mentioned before, LinkedIn and in other podcasts as well, just how some do it well and some don't do it well. Um, that must be quite frustrating because you're putting quite a lot of effort towards a partner who then might not be retailing online particularly well. So it's not making it easy for consumers to find your products, is it?
1: No, exactly. And um, because of the scale of these retailers, everything they do is at a certain level. So if you want to do a simple category banner on uh, one of these grocers' websites, you you might look at, sort of energy or, or fitness sort of category banner or whatever it is that you sell it's going to be thousands of pounds for a couple week placement, but you're not going to get money back for that you're just not because you're not going to get the sell-through necessary to, to justify that but I can see it from their perspective too it's why would they bother to do anything for anything less than thousands of pounds you know it doesn't, it just, it just, it's just not worth it. Why would they do anything at all? So I can see that this, I can see why they do it, but there's clearly a disconnect at the moment between, you know, the reality of how much traffic they're getting, how much they're converting and how much they're charging for things. When, when the, the other option as a, as a, as a brand is to, is to do um, Facebook acquisition campaigns that are going to be a lot more efficient, even if you're not particularly good at them, they're gonna be a lot more efficient in terms of return on investment. You're also controlling the narrative and you're getting you know the full margin on the product as opposed to splitting it with a grocer. So yeah, when, when you combine the scale with the results, it's, it is kind of disappointing in my experience so
0: far anyway. Yeah, I was just gonna ask you actually, of all the tactics, marketing, investments that you've had what 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 what's your top three most successful or best return? I mean, does it have to be always return? Maybe you think some of the investments have been well worthwhile for other metrics. But what's been top three sort of marketing investments you feel you've
1: made over the last five years? Um this is where I need to uh stick to my word and be very transparent. I always say that you know, secrecy in business is is overrated. Um, but there are some some tricks that we've done very well. But I'll I'll tell you. Uh One thing that we've done very, very well in the past is essentially build a unicorn ad. Uh, And so what that means is one ad on Facebook where you keep keep kind of pumping money on it. Um, And what happens if the ad is good and your product is good is you get a lot of um, uh, essentially reinforcement, a lot of positive comments um, on that ad from people who have bought from you. Uh, And that makes everything work a lot better. So you're getting a lot of um, trust, a lot of credibility, when if you see an ad and there's hundreds of thousands of comments where perhaps the top, we've had this, where the top comment is something like, you know, fantastic, changed my life, recommend it to everybody. And that's got like 400 likes and 100 replies to it. And that's the top comment on your ad. That's going to help. That's going to help a lot. Um, The the next thing that we've done really well is... um, Take a, a sort of non-direct uh, approach to uh, to acquiring customers and, and acquiring attention. Um, so, if we're talking about sleep, then there's dozens and dozens of things that we can recommend people to do before taking Unplug. Uh, and so we do that, and and by doing that first, then we establish a relationship of trust. Like, okay, these guys kind of know what they're talking about. Like, I didn't I didn't know that taking coffee first thing in the morning on an empty stomach would actually uh mess with my sleep hormones all the way through into the night Uh, but i've tried that and it's helped so i now have food before coffee and i'm suddenly sleeping better okay what can i do next what else have these guys got to say and then you can introduce the product suddenly from a relationship and a place of trust which again is going to certainly help with your conversions
0: yeah it's um it's really interesting isn't it uh there's so much skill um and the art of the science in your approach, isn't there? In terms of the marketing playbook, and I think that's the fascinating thing. Which is why I think you're so right about transparency. It's so overrated um, in terms of uh, holding it tight, because you have to you have to move so quickly, learn, <clears throat> and what works for you won't necessarily work for others. But um, it's, it's it's great insight to share. I just to, to move towards the latter stages of the of the podcast show. I just want to talk about how you feel the category has evolved since you started. Um, I still think it's very hard to navigate whether you're in store or online. Um, I've looked at it a lot. It, it still feels very clunky. You know, do you go via health and wellness then into the brain and then the brain into sleep or mood? Or is it at the top in a mainline navigation? Of course, it depends the breadth of the navigation of the store you're talking about, etc. But it still feels very clunky. People haven't quite worked it out yet. Um, is, is, is that how you feel or, or
1: do you have a different uh, view It's absolutely how I feel. Um, I I wish we could all agree on categorization and segmentation and um, merchandising and all these things. But uh, the reality is today, there's brands saying, they're selling nootropics and there's brands selling selling almost identical products saying, no, we don't do nootropics, we do brain supplements. (laughs) It's very, very painful because of course, that's all that's doing is pumping more money into creating confusion. So I think that the best thing to do from my perspective is, is what we've done with our, our own categorization, which is we're not doing energy nootropic or sleep nootropic anymore. We're doing stress, sleep, and energy. And within that, there's going to be different products that hopefully make perfect sense for people by their name, by their, the colors, by the kind of brand identity, the product identity that we've given these products, and also by the way you feel when you take them. Uh, and all that comes together but all of that comes together to answer the question how do i sleep better or how do i manage my stress better or how do i have more energy during the day so that i can do my work and then also go for a run when i'm done or or, or you know still have energy to socialize after work um i think those are the kind of real questions that people are asking so if we're trying to create categories i, I think the sensible thing to do especially when you're selling online is to go okay what's the sort of sensible search engine optimization what what's what really makes sense and i think that selling a a brain category doesn't really make a lot of sense for most people yeah it's
0: just it's such a frustrating one i I can see a lot of people sort of huffing puffing and trying but yeah it it feels we all have to keep defaulting back to the way it's done at the moment for for maybe those reasons search terms optimization etc but i'm not sure it's um yeah, we need to um, continue to drive some of this trailblazing, trailblazing, but just more intuitive approach, I think. In terms of actually, I'm really interested, on, on the consumers who are buying into this, so st- stress, sleep, and energy, are they are they more and more um, vegan, plant-based, naturalness? Um, what, what are the prerequisites to products to be successful in this category now? Has that evolved in the last five years, do you think? Um
1: yeah sure but i I don't think that um necessarily it is as um as simple as saying you know plant-based is going to sell more i think it's more about um delivering a product that really works and that people can can understand and and trust and use easily you know we have uh still to this day uh, organic whey protein that we sell and that we sell very well uh, and it's a very good product that's very easy to use and very easy to understand and as um as an add-on when we're talking about stress and sleep and energy organic whey protein is incredibly powerful uh it's it's uh, the best source of, tri- of naturally occurring tryptophan which is what's going to help you create sleep hormones so of course it's going to help with your muscular recovery but also it's going to help you with stress management and sleep and it's just a great product and it's not vegan but you know, by not labelling ourselves as plant-based, perhaps we didn't, perhaps we didn't, uh, you know, grow as fast as we could have because we didn't jump g- onto that massive wave of PR and public attention. But it does mean that we were more free to to carry on offering these fantastic products that are that don't fit that very specific label.
0: Yeah, and um, a, a very personal question for me because I, I actually talk about some of your protein powders a lot. Because um, I really like them, the the morning one and the way you describe that, and also this the way you've combined the whey protein with um, the additional active ingredients, and the way you also talk about the soothing flavors um, and and those uh, are they. I feel like this is how I describe it. I feel like you've kind of you've taken on something that everyone wants to do, which is protein post pre sleep um, for the benefits of that, and trying to create an overnight recovery. And, and it's been with some awful products and historical um, times, by the way, that have tried to do that. And no one's quite got this one. I've, I've kind of seen it as a really sort of rich area for potential opportunity to get right and connect with a consumer. Um, and I just I guess just looking for some subjectivity on on how how they've been received so people understood them are, are they going in the right direction? just because I really like them on paper mm-hmm. uh, they, they're just the way that I read the product description, I really like them on paper um, and but I just don't you know I don't know i think I think you're you're out there with it. so I just wondered whether anything you could say on whether they're working or what what's been
1: difficult with them still? yeah, I think that's perfect description. they're. They are fantastic on paper. They, the reality is they have a few very diehard fans, um, but for the majority of people, they're too natural. like they're, they're not sweet enough or they're a bit too powdery or you know this and that. I think that we, we still have to find a, a good middle ground between like really, really healthy products and at least if you're going kind of mainstream, uh, a product that you know fits with people's taste buds and what they're used to, and so th- these are products that do incredibly well with nutritionists and with people who are willing to go see nutritionists. So that means that they're in the mindset of spending 100 pounds an hour to see a nutritionist every month, plus sometimes two, three, four hundred pounds a month on supplements. In other words, they're they're in the rabbit hole, like they're dedicated, they're, they're kind of knee deep in this and they're willing to make some sacrifices, in which case the products work really, really well. And once people are accustomed to the, the flavor, uh, which is, 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 is not that it's a bad flavor, it's just that we don't use sweeteners. Uh, once people are used to that and get over it, then yeah, like I say, we have some really diehard fans that really love it and have been buying it since day one, nonstop. Um, But when you're trying to convert new customers who have been accommodated to, you know, either sucralose or stevia, and I mean a lot of stevia, (laughs) Mm -hmm. then it's quite a hard sell. You know, um, pea protein shouldn't taste like tiramisu, like extremely, extremely sweet tiramisu. It's um, the reason I I feel this way is not just because uh, of the amount of sweetener, it's because it's changing your perception of flavor across the board. So when you're having something that's there to improve your health, um, and it's delivering on its promise of giving you protein and maybe with a few extras, but it's changing your palate so much because it's so sweet that it changes your perception of other foods when you're at a, state, at a point in your life when you're trying to eat more things like raw, or fresh, whole foods, vegetables, and this kind of thing. Um, I don't think that's very helpful. I think that's kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, and I, I kind of wish more people understood this, but it's 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 a hard one to get across. It is, it is. I mean, Joe, if you don't remember saying, you're not choosing to take
0: the path of least resistance, are you? <laughs> no. I, no um, if, if I took that right the way through this podcast, I think well, I mean, it's refreshing, of course, but a lot of people will also say, but come on, Joe, you know, you know, you've got to make them taste better. You know that this is important, but you you've really taken. You're choosing to take a, a, a different path, not the right one, not the wrong one, who knows? Hopefully it's the right one. Just a path of more resistance.
1: That's true, but um, protein powders is not our A game. And uh, and I'm quite honest about this. And what it does is it has a halo effect on everything else we do. So you may not like the taste of our fresh blueberry morning protein powder, but you know it's good. As in, you know it's good for you. And maybe it's too far, but suddenly your mindset is these guys do really healthy things and those capsules don't have any flavor (laughs) so I think those capsules are just as good for me as this protein powder that I don't I'm not willing to take the flavor of I'm not willing to do that but I know that these guys are doing really really good things so that suddenly changes my perspective of the other products that they do. Brilliant. Um, Just as a final
0: place, because we always, we do tend to try and ask this, and I don't want to take advantage of your commitment to transparency, but it'd be great because everyone's listened to this. It's always nice to provide some context of sort of where you are in terms of financially, number of customers and what sort of curve you're on, because in some respects, it gives people context to, to everything we've discussed. So. It'd be great to get a sense of um, the buoyancy of uh, motion today, and um, and what that looks like, and, and what we should expect in the future.
1: Sure. So, one big, big thing that I haven't talked about at all today, because there's so many other things to cover, is that it's been exactly one year that we've been banned from Facebook advertising. Uh, Where we're we're pulling through this now, and we're we're about to kickstart again. But that means that the last year has been really slow in terms of growth. Uh, it's basically like you know you're on a plane with the engines off kind of thing it, it's all right you feel and, and you, it's funny you always hear people talk about um oh you can really test the value of a brand when you switch off Facebook ads but you can switch off Facebook ads for a couple of weeks and your plane is still gliding at the same altitude if you do it for six months 12 months that's when you really test it you're really flexing the brand because that's when you can see okay who's staying who's who's staying and how many customers are you acquiring without it being uh without spending a lot of money so that's been a really big challenge for us, but uh, it, it certainly slowed us down. And up until last year, we were growing 2x or more every single year. And this past year, we've grown just 10%, which, yeah, it's it's been disappointing. But um, at the same time, when you take into the account, into account, uh, that we're an omnichannel brand, and that retail has been extremely slow, and that there's been COVID, and that there's been Brexit... <laughs> Uh, and that we haven't advertised at all on Facebook or, or Instagram. I'm I'm actually pretty proud of that. And, and now we've taken that time to build a much better website and a much again simplified message. Uh, and, and now we're just really ready to go. So how will you how will you take advantage of the I say a
0: post-COVID era? That doesn't mean to say COVID's gone, but more just a post-let's say the enormity of the last 18 months. Uh, We describe it as um, a highly sensitized group of consumers who are super interested in being proactive about their health. That just says to to me and to everyone, what an opportunity to be in this space with the products that you have and the brand that you have, but it's still not going to be easy. So what what do we need to do to to take advantage of these sort of sensitized consumers? And my
1: assumption is a greater
0: amount of consumers.
1: Yeah, um... I think for us, uh, the big thing now is leveraging those diehard fans that we have and creating as much of a voice as possible. Uh, in the same way that I described that that unicorn ad, uh, if, if we can not just have our own voice be heard, but have the voice of our consumers be heard and, and multiplied, then that's gonna make anything we do in terms of ad spend work a heck of a lot better. And that's exactly why a smart investor asks about whether we're getting sales and, and orders from countries where we're not advertising.
0: Brilliant. Well, listen, for everyone um, who has, who's uh, tuned in today, um, I didn't want to steal just on the, from your own podcast and your own musings, particularly around the Facebook, so they can get the detail and the, 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 the veracity of the, of the way you've gone about that and your views on that directly from you. I think for today, you've given some really, really phenomenal transparent um, authentic insights actually it's really it's really useful for people um, which is what a great opportunity there is out there but you know don't be under any illusions and like we do know deep down underneath the surface it's not all plain sailing and simple um, but if there's anything Joe I can say that I take from it it's just is the clarity that you provide um, and I guess the path that you want to take and you just keep drumming that over and over again and enough people will listen I think um, and you know that you're not flip-flopping that's for certain from one thing to the other which is quite nice to hear actually so thank thanks you, so much for your time today i've really really enjoyed it really appreciate it
1: thanks nick it's been a real pleasure
0: big thank you to joe for joining us today i have to say it's another great podcast and it's not just joe's transparency of course it's actually the quality of the transparency which he provides I think a few things that stand out for me, um, which are quite important. Number one, I think it was the brand pivot relatively early. I think that's something a lot of brands, particularly startups, can learn from. I think you can take a lot also about the learning exposure that they've gone through about category creation or certainly being at the inception of a category such as nootropics, which remains a buzzword, but I still think is so much space to grow into particularly as consumers better understand what it is, what it means, and what it can do for them. And I think also you've got to admire, smile, and actually just appreciate that Joe loves to take the path of most resistance. In comparison to others who I think take the path of least resistance, I think Joe is vehement in his principles, he's vehement in the direction, and he very much decides to stick to it, come hell or high water. I think that's admirable. I also think it provides something unique about him and also the brand and gives them probably some advantage over others. doesn't mean to say it's going to be easy, of course, but potentially the space that they end up in will be far, far better and more brighter, perhaps. And then finally, a little bit specific, of course, to the conversation at the end about flavor and related to their protein powders. But I love the quote that I've taken for the soundbite about the importance of not changing our flavor sort of perceptions and not playing to this sweetness trend and that pea protein shouldn't taste like tiramisu. I'll let you listen to it again. I'll let you reflect on the soundbite we put together, but honestly, I think it's a really important area that does need to change. I think it will change, but it's going to take someone who takes the path of most resistance in order to drive that change and that today was joe and that was motion nutrition and so with that i say thank you to joe for joining us and of course i hope you got a lot from it and we look forward to having you back again very soon bye-bye for now